from the creator economy to the end of Bretton Woods and the origins of the metaverse. This is the UAE Tech Podcast Web3 edition. Tune in for cutting edge interviews on how blockchain is reshaping cyberspace, finance and culture from here in Dubai and cities around the world. Two of the three biggest sand countries in the world. Second is UAE, number three is Saudi Arabia. And one of the biggest received countries in the world is, is um, India. So just between UAE and India, roughly around $27 billion moves across every year. Wow. So when we look at a solution, I think one thing one ought to think about is, is two things. Understand what the uh, legal and regulatory framework is, uh, abiding by all the AML, all the compliance that is required. And number two, you want to build something which is scalable. Uh, scalable as in you want to expand it across your whole network. And I, 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 I think that that is one or two of the hindrances which at the moment a lot of the players are facing. I know there's, there's a lot of players out there in the market which are exploring similar pilots. Um, but I think the challenge for all of us is the same, is, is to come up with a solution that is truly scalable and, 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 and has that uh, legal and regulatory framework which appeases uh, the, the, the regulators and the governments. Today we're talking with Angad Chatter, CEO of Wiz Financial India. According to Angad, a recent study by Oliver Wyman and JP Morgan says the total remittances of money that have moved across borders, this is all segments, not just the consumer, but business and government, is in the range of about 25 billion a year. That's 25% of global GDP. As such, remittances have become a key use case for central bank digital currencies and other forms of emerging public sector financial instrument. Angad points out that at present, a lot of this infrastructure, for example, in China, with services like Alipay, is led by the private sector. That might be great for speed and efficiency, but it might not be suitable for a de facto currency, particularly at scale, for example, the scale of a nation state. Wiz Financial emphasizes the importance of blue collar workers, not simply tech titans, and the need for empathy in creating harmonized regulatory and technical frameworks. The UAE Tech Podcast, of course, has worked hard to reflect the full spectrum of debate on digital currencies. Regardless of where you might personally stand on the subject, this overview on the remittance economy and the changing face of financial services is both timely and important. Today we're talking to Angad Chatter from Wiz Financial. Angad, thanks so much for joining us. So can you tell us a little bit about you, your background, and what is Wiz Financial? Absolutely. Um, it's a pleasure to be, uh, to be speaking to you today, John. Um, a bit of a background about myself, a brief background about myself. Um, I was born in London, but I've lived between India and, and the UK. Uh, whilst I was doing my schooling. Um, I finished university uh, from Imperial College in London, and I did the stereotypical thing in London, which is join the financial industry. And I was a, a special situations trader at Morgan Stanley and at Bank of America Merrill Lynch. 
One day I had this epiphany that my job ought to be automated because all I do is look at time series. Surely there must be there must be there must be some computer algorithm which can do this far better than I can. Um, subsequently, I pivoted about five to six years ago, and I started working in machine learning and artificial intelligence. So I worked for a few fintech companies in um, the UK, which was sort of using this technology uh, to solve different problems. Um, I have been working as a um, in this field, uh, consulting uh, companies such as uh, Ernest and Young, uh, coming up with recommendation algorithms, which are similar to the ones we see nearly every day in our lives when we switch on Netflix or we go on Spotify or if we go on Amazon. Um, so um, that's a bit of a brief background about myself. Um, I joined Risk Financial about one and a half years ago. Um, our chairman, uh, and, and the reason why I did that, um, our chairman, Amir Nagami, who's the founder and the chairman of Risk Financial, he's sort of very mission-driven. And I, I do implore you to have him on your podcast one day because his story really would make a lot of sense as to why he went down this path of, of sort of going after this company. Um, we at Risk Financial, um, we acquired and are acquiring a number of entities from Finabler PLC. These include UAE Exchange, uh, which is uh, more than 40 years old. It was the first non-banking uh, company, I believe, in the UAE to be a SWIFT member. Uh, the other brands include companies such as Express Money, UniMoney, and if they had a very big global footprint being present in more than 120 odd countries, serving about 25 million odd customers. However, when we look at, uh, um, when we look at this, um, another company which we're in the uh, sort of process of acquiring, and this is public information, is the Bahrain uh, finance company, which is led by one of the veterans and one of the smartest uh, people in the remittance uh, industry in the MENA re region, uh, Ibrahim Nunu, uh, who has been in this space for the past, uh, I believe, 40 odd years. Um, we at WIS Financial have, we are very mission driven. Our mission here and our core customers historically have always been the blue collar workers. The blue collar workers in the GCC make up around about roughly around 40 to 45 percent of the total population. In the UAE, that number possibly is much higher. Our mission is to empower these people uh, by giving them access to the full gamut of financial services, uh, which, uh, for lack of a better word, we from the Western world take for granted. Um, and, and to empower them to sort of fulfill their dreams and their visions and what they want to do in life. Um, and whilst we've been through going through this journey, we wanted to create an ecosystem which is conducive to all stakeholders, including the government of the UAE, the central bank of the UAE, other central banks, other governments, and even having an ecosystem on which uh, via open banking, other fintechs, other developers, can join in and make this proposition far more stronger. Thanks for that really interesting introduction, both to you and, and with Financial. And of course, you know, 
I've spent a decade out in the Middle East. Um, remittances, UAE Exchange, Western Union, all those services are really part of life in a way that they're not, you know, in the UK or the US or Europe. Um, and of course, the, the remittance economy generally and the importance of cross-border payments is something that kind of the entire society understands. Um, so there's a lot to discuss there because there's also these new technologies arising that are that are shifting um, how some of this works. So with a focus on kind of, you know, what WIS Financial is trying to do, what are some of the pain points in the existing kind of remittance financial infrastructure? And how is WIS Financial trying to alleviate them or provide new kinds of uh, digital and banking infrastructure for, as you said, blue collar workers? Um, absolutely. So I think, um, John, I, I, I will first start off by telling you an interesting fact. Uh, there was a recent study done by, I believe, uh, Oliver Wyman and JP Morgan, right? They say that to the total remittances or money that moves across border, and this is across all segments, not just the consumer, but I'm talking about businesses and government, is in the range of about $25 trillion a year, which is 25% of global GDP. Hmm. Now, the cost, just the transaction cost. So when you do a remittance transaction, there's usually two costs associated with it. One is the transaction fees, which I call the explicit fees. Hmm. And the other is the FX spread, which, which a exchange house or remittance company uh, may be putting in, the, in terms of uh, the bid ask on these uh, uh, currency pairs. Just the transaction cost of these uh, $25 trillion uh, moving um, cross-border is $120 billion a year. The average time it takes for settlement is between two to three days. And the reason why it happens that way is because it is still very dependent on the correspondent banks, right? And usually for one transaction, there can be anything between two to six correspondent banks involved in moving money between accounts. Now, if you look at generally look at the remittance industry, and I think there's been certain changes and some of them have been expedited courtesy of um, COVID. Um, we had players such as UAE Exchange, um, Western Union, which you mentioned, uh, where, uh, which had a very uh, express money, um, moneygram, etc. which, uh, you know, we used to go to one of their stores or their branches, uh, give the money, and, and subsequently used to get picked up by the recipient in whichever country they were based. We've had a whole load of startups uh, and fintechs which have come up over the past decade, which have alleviated one of the pain points which was, I do not like to queue and drive up to go to a branch <laughs> on a Saturday morning. So there is, uh, there is startups and, and, and different fintechs, your WISE, your Remitly, your uh, World Remit, which now enable you to do the same transaction via your phones and, and, and it saves you the hassle of having to go there. However, the underlying rails across which money moves has not changed. It is exactly the same yeah. thing. What we have done is um, we have alleviated some of the inconvenience in terms of going in and having to queue up or the inconvenience of having to go there and to do that. So I think if you look at this space, I think um, uh, 
I think one of the things one ought to sort of, and one of the things we are looking at, we're looking at this from various different aspects. One is we want to have a platform which is compatible with central bank digital currencies, right? I think central bank digital currencies, I believe more than 80 different countries are in some stage of either piloting or trying to, to uh, implement uh, this. Uh, whilst I think there has been significant, um, I think there's been significant advances, there's still a lot of hurdles, especially legal and regulatory ones, in terms of what is the role of the central bank, uh, what is the role of the banks. Um, but we can we can sort of go sort of go into that. The way we want to address this problem and the way we look at this, especially for the unbanked, uh, especially for these blue collar workers, is. The first thing we need to do is induce a slight change in behavior because still cash is still uh, a preferred method for these people to remit money. Secondly, I think in terms of what, what is the actual pain point for this blue collar worker, the number one thing which, which impacts them the most is the cost and the ethics rate. And the biggest efficiency you can get through that is if you start reimagining the payment rails, because at the end of the day, I have to depend on the correspondent banks who are going to charge me a certain amount to move money across. So that is one area where we're not just about UAE exchange and facing the customer. It is how do we become part with different partners and different stakeholders from the government to be able to, um, uh, you know, redefine these rails. And that is very, very important to us. Yeah, it is. And I mean, it, it is a fascinating discussion and it goes goes well beyond banking. I, I mean, on the on the UA Tech podcast, we've spoken to so many people from across the aisle, people from, um, you know, DIFC and ADGM that I think would, would be on the same page as you uh, to kind of, you know, the, every, the full spectrum of the crypto community. And I think one of the only things that all that wide spectrum has in common is an agreement that the remittance economy and global payments are absolutely critical. And that, that in a way, is your kind of base. If there's one thing that all of those individuals have agreed on, it's that that's really important. And I was speaking to, to a guy yesterday that was saying, you know, probably some things in terms of infrastructure and payment rails that, that were antagonistic to, to central bank digital currencies, but we're also pointing out, look, if I'm in the States and I send a dollar to China, I spend $30 on transaction fees and it can take four to five days, depending on when I send it. If I send it on a weekend, even longer. And he, he, the point was, this is objectively absurd. Um, okay, regulation is important, but we have, some, we have increasing solutions to do this quicker and it's good for everyone. Also got people, ironically, that are, that are working in, in kind of large online worlds um, where people are increasingly trading physical and, and virtual assets. And, they're saying, look, we're at the forefront of the economy here, but we can't scale this unless we can figure out how our guy in Taiwan who's building this cool design or this guy in Germany who's doing this can pay each other at the speed of this network we're building. And if we can't, it's going to throttle and hold back everything we're doing. Um, so you've got kind of the blue collar workers and, and you know, the, the, the importance, as you said, to daily life in, in cities like Dubai or Jordan, where I was before, being able to transfer money home, where you can, you know, that $10 or $20 surcharge at times can be really annoying. 
Um, and then, and all the way up to, you know, kind of people building, building large systems who have teams all over the world. And it would just really help them to be able to send money quickly to, to different locations. Um, how do you, I mean, obviously central banks, before we get to central banks, we have to kind of address, I guess, the elephant in the room, which is the crypto community will yeah. immediately say, well, hey, you know, uh, these guys, they've got the old infrastructure. They're the old legacy institutions. Why would you go to them? Why wouldn't you use crypto? And I think there are some case studies. Saudi Arabia has Project Dabba, which was interesting. But there are also some case studies in the GCC of, in Bahrain and KSA of individuals, particularly during COVID-19, turning to crypto. And I'm not sure how successful or secure that was, but definitely some evidence that... Um, consumers and blue collar workers were moving into crypto because of the speed and possibly because of the ease of acquisition. Although I do, I do, uh, you know, submit there are, there are probably some issues there too. Um, absolutely. And, and I think, I think you're spot on. And I think that's a very valid question. Um, we at Wiz Financial are currently, and you will soon hear, we are working um, on a venture where we want to explore using stable coins. Um, stable coins such as USDC by Circle. Um, we tend to uh, we 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 uh, tend to, we want to do a small pilot in one corridor. Um, you have to you have to remember that in in all of this process of moving money, there's certain certain very critical components. Um, they include KYC know your customer, anti-money laundering, um, financial crime. And these are very, very imperative for regulators and governments all around the world. Um, I think with some of the cryptocurrencies you mentioned, some of them can be rather volatile. So, uh, <laughs> you know, um, maybe for the blue collar worker, maybe that's perhaps a bit too much risk for them to digest. Um, Stable coins is definitely a way, and you did have Novi, which was the uh, arm of Facebook, which uh, tried to do something similar between um, the US and Guatemala. Um, uh, I think one of, the, one of the current hindrances to that is it doesn't simply have the level of supply to be able to completely. So for example, um, two of the biggest sent countries in the world Two of the three biggest sent countries in the world. Second is UAE. Number three is Saudi Arabia. And one of the biggest received countries in the world is, is um, India. So just between UAE and India, roughly around $27 billion moves across every year. Wow. So when we look at a solution, I think one thing one ought to think about is, is two things. Understand what the... Uh, legal and regulatory framework is uh, abiding by all the AML, all the compliance that is required. And number two, you want to build something which is scalable. Uh, scalable as in you want to expand it across your whole network. And I, 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 I think that that is one or two of the hindrances which at the moment a lot of the players are facing. I know there's there's a lot of players out there in the market which are exploring similar pilots. Um, but I think the challenge for all of us is the same, is, is to come up with a solution that is truly scalable 
and, 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 and has that uh, legal and regulatory framework which appeases uh, the, the, the regulators and the governments. Yeah, and there's also that point about financial inclusion, isn't there? Because you've just mentioned some, some giant numbers between India and the UAE. <laughs> yes. And, um, you know, that, so how does that work as well? So there's this idea that digital payments could be a solution to improving financial inclusion, possibly creating new opportunities, lifting people into a new economic bracket. How real from your side is that? And how, how near term is that? So um, when it comes to um, financial inclusion and when it comes to the unbanked, um, I think based on recent reports, there's about 1.7 billion people in the world that are currently unbanked, uh, which mm -hmm. roughly is one in four people. Now, UAE and Saudi Arabia are amongst the wealthiest and most advanced economies in the world, and, and, and they're, they're the leaders in terms of macroeconomic stability. The UAE is second in the world in terms of um, ICT, Internet Communication Technology Adoption, after South Korea. So that clearly shows you the, the rapid progress um, uh, being made in these countries. However, today, in or based on numbers from 2018-2019, in the UAE, 1.7 million people are unbanked. That is roughly one-third of the working population. And most of these people who are unbanked tend to be the ones who earn less than $1,500 a, a, a month. Now, when it comes to this, I think there's some interesting studies that have been done. And I, I'll give you an example from the US where um, even in the US, you have about 20 million people who are still unbanked. In the US, you have your big old traditional banks, such as your JP Morgans, your, 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 your Wells Fargo, and you have these new wave of digital wallets, um, which have come up in the past, say, decade. So you have um, uh, uh, an app known as Cash by Square, Venmo by PayPal. Today, Venmo and Cash has about, about 75 to 80 million users, respectfully, and JP Morgan has about 60 million, despite that and that was uh, uh, deposit holders, and that has been accumulated over 30 uh, years and includes <laughs> five acquisitions. And there, there's a logic behind this. The difference is the customer acquisition cost. If I am a bank, and if you're a bank, um, so for example, in the US, uh, these banks, um, their customer acquisition costs ranged between um, $350 to about $1,500. So if you take an average of say $925, there is the same customer acquisition cost in the US for these uh, other digital wallet providers was $20. Now, this calculation massively changes the lifetime value calculation in terms of profitability, which drives decisions uh, for a lot of these institutions. Now, um, for if you look at, uh, for example, um, a, a customer, um, a customer needs to have, uh, over the lifetime of a customer in 16 years, the bank on average would make about $1,500. So if you subtract that 925, that makes it $575 over uh, 16 years. Now, that same lifetime value for the 
digital wallet provider is $14.80 because it only cost them $20 to acquire the customer. Now, in terms of deposits, the break-even point for a bank is usually you need to have account deposits of around five to 6,000 before they break even. Now, in the US, the unbanked usually have less than $1,000, right? So you see why it is not currently a, a big motivation for the banks to go after these people. And that's where these digital wallets can really come into their own uh, because they have a far lower requirement in terms of customer acquisition cost, in terms of the amount of deposits um, they actually uh, require. So in this space, for these people, um, in terms of the UAE, the same applies exactly the same here. I think the numbers may differ, but you can see generally a trend as to why the banks focus on, on, on certain segments of the market and, and, and certain segments get left unbanked. The, the important thing here from a digital wallet provider is, is to be able to provide that full gamut of, 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 of uh, financial services, whether that's through partnership, whether that's through an ecosystem, and most importantly, is there's uh, the WPS in this region and, and how to incorporate that into your offering. Um, in terms of smartphones in this region, um, I believe 92% smartphone penetration in the GCC compared yeah, to all, world app. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's the reverse, you know, the, the most exactly. ranked issue, but the, the smartphone penetration is, is much more, which is clearly, again, good for digital apps. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think, you know, uh, I often um, believe this just as a general rule of thumb. I know there's a lot of players who are trying to crack this. And I do believe that there isn't one that currently exists which has been able to do this. Um, and and you do you usually get this. You have to remember that Facebook was not the first uh, social media platform. Google was not the first search engine. What I mean mm. is there's a lot of iteration. And I think I think the the real way to solve this is via empathy. While the digital wallet is uh, is, is 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 technology and an enabler. I think it's empathy to really understand the pain points of these blue collar workers. What do they really want? You have to remember this has to cater to many languages. You see, you see my point. Yeah, so. I mean, that, that's very interesting in terms of just design and outlook, and yeah. particularly given that, you know, you've been working on kind of event driven trading and financial engineering and algorithms and all this hard data <laughs> stuff you, you to, to point out that that empathy could be a part of the design is, is quite an interesting and, and subtle way of looking at it. Um, but I also, I also read that, you know, there's this idea that um, a vendor selling fruit um, can, can sell or, or, or even buy fruit with a phone without sending any commission to a credit card company. Obviously that, that example of a vendor selling fruit is important in the Middle East, given, yeah. given some of the history um, in the early part of, uh, of the decade. Um, and then there's also this idea, you know, that, that digital wallets, as you said, are just accessible. So do you think it might be that the technology and the infrastructure is there? It's just the kind of um, entry point and the understanding that, that hu the human motivations still need a little bit of work. Yes, I, I, do, I do believe that. And I, I, I think um, 
I think it is, so the way we, uh, we look at it, for example, um, we have a, um, we uh, acquire a number of entities in India as well, which has um, already got digital wallet licenses. So if I can induce that change of behavior by offering a far more competitive rate uh, to that individual here, where if he was to go between here and India, he has the same exact same digital wallet without having to keep moving and transferring and like, uh, mm, like also you know, so, yeah, so, I, so that's very interesting. Sorry to, yeah. but, but that, that point you just made was something I wanted to ask a bit earlier, but I, but I thought we, we might yeah. lose track on that because you were talking about central bank digital currencies and, and, you know, we can get into that. And so I have really two questions on that. The first is, as you just said, if you want to move, one of the, one of the examples I always say is, is, um, Uber, but it could be any ride-sharing app. Yes. One of the things I remember really liking about it is a period where I was just traveling too much and being able to go to an airport and use the app on my phone, regardless of the location, and call a car. And there were a couple of times where that was just incredibly useful and comforting because you're already stressed. You know, you don't want to find out what the local logistics are. You just go on your phone. There's something quite empowering about that. The idea of, as well of traveling and having something on your phone that you can access anywhere, which a lot of us, you know, a lot of traditional banks do that now too, as long as you have a Wi-Fi connection, is actually a big change. One thing I, I, I wanted to ask though is, is, isn't that in a way uh, an example of the network almost replacing the nation state and the central bank structure? So even if you have central bank digital currencies, because we had this discussion with a European banker, you yeah. have the sort of conflict with this kind of supranatural, supranational digital wallet ecosystems that, okay, you can have a government coin and I don't know how it will operate across borders, but isn't there some kind of conflict between the borderless accessible world you and I are discussing and the world of central bank digital currencies? Or am I, is that wrong? Is that, is that I think basic? I think you, 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 you definitely have a point. I think there's a number of consideration and design consideration for central bank digital currencies. So uh, if you look at the uh, People's Bank of China, um, they're going for particular design choice. So for example, should the CBDC be interest-bearing or not interest-bearing? The, the Central Bank of Sweden may have a slightly different view. Is the core technology a centralized ledger or is it a decentralized ledger? So there's very important design decisions which are being tested as we go mm. along. One of the things that they are doing, and, and I do believe it is happening, we do have a, a G20 uh, working committee, which is looking at the exact thing which you're mentioning, which is how do we have te technology, technology in, in interoperability? So how do we make sure that, you know, we can have settlement between, um, say, the dirham or the pound as, as we're speaking? And that's something that is being discussed. And there's two aspects to this again. Again, we go back to having these, um, number one is having a um, harmonization of the legal and regulatory um, framework because they tend to differ per countries. And I think secondly is, is keeping in mind uh, the broadest uh, uh, scope of, of, of understanding how to make this different system interoperable. It should be interesting to see um, uh, um, how coordinated and what happens with this, I think one of the big advantages, uh, 
John, about CBDCs is you have to remember what is the motivation behind CBDCs. Uh, you're very right in saying remittance is one of them, but there's other far more pressing issues uh, above that. Number one is financial inclusion. Number two is easy accessibility to payments. How to make your payment system more resilient. For example, in China, mobile payments is dominated by two players, Alipay and WeChat Pay. What happens if anything was to go wrong with one of them? So uh, the fourth point is about, um, is, is, is about making, um, uh, uh, about mon monetary sovereignty. What happens to the central bank of a country if everyone just goes and adopts a particular stable coin? How, how powerful are your monetary policy tools? So this, those are a lot of the motivations. And don't yeah. get me wrong, uh, I think no, it's, fast, it's absolutely fascinating. And, and yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the, the discussion today with Wiz, Wiz Financial is about some very technical stuff. But just so you know, in previous episodes, we've spoken to some guys who've obviously spoken a lot about Bretton Woods, spoken yeah. a lot about, they've agreed with you, but they've said, um, great, you know, um, sent the, the, the nation state is on its way out, and the central bank is on its way out, and we're moving into some network currency type reality where, um, you know, the sovereignty of uh, digital, there won't be sovereign digital currencies and, you know, geopolitics itself were changing. So we've kind of had that debate on, on the podcast and it's been very historical, but, but you're right, there are also very human issues of trust. People want to trust Absolutely. the currencies they're using. With The point you made on private platforms, you know, it's great to say, um, you know, hang on, um, can we really trust this government or that government? But um, a global tech company as well brings up many, many similar issues. Yeah. And, and again, we've spoken, you know, we one of the most fascinating two-minute conversations uh, we had in, in the kind of fintech space was with Pedro Pinto, well-known um, European banker, who said everything for us changed when we looked at the, the Facebook DM Libra project. And we realized that if they launched that, um, the threat to our entire banking system in Europe long term would be significant. Um, so, you know, you're getting into to some really real, real questions about that. And I think CBDCs, you know, uh, I've read the Snowden critique of them. Yes. Um, I've also worked with regulators and policymakers who um, have a, a gamut of very good reasons be they financial defense and security um you know economic um so so it's a tough one but these are really hard questions aren't they yes. these are questions that will reshape a lot of a lot of the way we live um absolutely and i i, I think this is where I, I think given the um given the rise of certain cryptocurrencies since about say 2000 and things in the last decade or so has really kicked a lot of the central banks into motion um, because it, it does, um, it does it, to, to your point, it, it does pose some uh, very serious questions where I think just, just thinking out loud now, right? Um, following the financial crisis or following uh, the start of, of the COVID uh, pandemic, imagine the government not, or, or, and the central bank not having those tools to, to, to be able to, uh, you know, um, 
um, bring about any monetary or physical uh, changes. And, and, and that's why I think there's, there's a lot of questions, especially from the uh, uh, legal and regulatory framework. But I think with CBDC, so for example, ECNY, I think that's been one of the biggest pilots in the world. I believe they had about 120 million different wallet holders um, with 9 million businesses on top. They, they pilot this across multiple different cities. Now, one of the things with China as well is, is it's got a huge, uh, it's a huge country with huge rural areas with 150 million unbanked. So the, it's about not just about do you have a digital currency, but how do I enable that to do offline transactions? Because that infrastructure doesn't exist anywhere wow. in certain parts, certain yeah, parts of China. Yeah, it's really and so yeah. you, you, if you start going down, so if, 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 if one of the main motivations is financial inclusion, I think this is a question that, that does need to be answered. Now, similarly in, in, in Africa and in other countries as well, uh, you know, um, there is possibilities, there's areas which does not have the infrastructure where, uh, you know, to be able to do online transactions. Uh, if you are, you have to provide that same access across the board. And, and that's a that's a challenge. <laughs> that is. And, and that's that's an interesting one. OK, so, I mean, we're getting towards the end of our conversation today. But the final thing I wanted to ask you about, and it's something um, we haven't spoken about much, and it's something that I find personally fascinating, actually, is this idea of government to consumer platforms, yeah. which allowed governments to give money to people cutting out corruption. Um, apparently yes. there are fintechs in the United States and some in the Middle East who are looking at this. Could you do two things for us? Could you describe what this idea is? Is it yeah. the same as universal basic income? Is it different? And could you talk a little bit about why you think this this might be something to keep an eye on, uh, particularly for people such as myself who are kind of interested in that intersection of government and technology. Um, absolutely. So um, we've uh, signed a memorandum of understanding with the National Payment Corporation of India to try and see if we can leverage uh, their real-time uh, digital payment platform known as the Unified Payment Interface in the UAE. GCC and Africa. Now this platform last year in India did around 60 billion transactions with a transaction value of very close to $1 trillion. Wow, that's unbelievable. And, and what you think about this platform is whilst it enables this, it, is, it, it obviously is supervised by the central bank. The participants are your banks and your other fintechs. It does something which is far more than these KPIs I've mentioned. It's an ecosystem builder. It's an open banking platform. It invites developers, it invites innovative fintechs to join and, and solve some of the problems uh, that exist uh, in the country. But one of the other things which you can do on top of this platform is you can do a G2, G2C scheme. And you can do this simply by a QR code or a SMS string-based uh, e-voucher. So if you have a government agency which wants to issue a voucher, they will approach one of their partner banks. 
The bank will get the details of the beneficiary, right? Then you have an issuing authority which will issue this e-voucher or QR code, right? In, in the UAE's example, it would have to be probably the central bank of UAE or, or, or one of their payment arms of the government. The beneficiary gets this QR code on their phone. It does not need to be in a smartphone. They get an SMS. It does not need to have internet. So you have none of those reasons. So if, for example, I'm giving someone a education grant, they get that there, they go to the university, um, the university will scan that QR code, you get a one-time OTP, uh, you give it back to the university, and the service provider gets paid in real time. This way, you avoid a few things. You avoid having too many intermediaries, um, the actual benefit not reaching the beneficiary, uh, a similar thing was actually done based on this platform in India, where they were able to give out direct benefits, uh, dispersals uh, during time of COVID to hundreds of millions of people in, in, in no time. With, most importantly, the benefit going to the intended beneficiary, it is in a way, it is the most efficient uh, way, in, in our opinion, one of the most efficient ways to deploy something like this. Now, in the US, for example, I know the US also had a voucher scheme, but if you look at when they were giving out their, uh, the paychecks for, for COVID, I believe it was between 1,200 to maybe 2,000, um, they depended on a number of different intermediaries, uh, including Visa, uh, to enable to, to sort of distribute that money through prepaid cards. Um, some people were getting checks. This QR code-based system, it, it sort of is, is something which we believe is, 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 is far more um, far-reaching and it's far more transparent and it's something good as well for the service provider is they get paid in real time. <laughs> so that's yeah. very important. Uh, that, that's an amazing case study. I sometimes yeah. think, um, you know, sometimes think in a way the tech industry in, in the West can be quite inward-looking parochial sometimes because some of the most interesting government-based, citizen-based technology projects I've come across have been, you know, in the UAE and in India and in China and places like that. But I can see, you know, you made that, that point that not only can it help citizens, but it's an ecosystem where you can build all sorts of other things off. Yeah. Um, so yeah, some of the, some of the, the programs in, in India are really fascinating. We, we, I think the, 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 uh, the podcast should, should have a, a bit of a closer look at that market. Uh, absolutely. And yeah. just to give you a, an interesting fact there, John, I think this was based on uh, certain numbers I saw in a study, uh, I think maybe it's for last year or the year before, but India is doing more real-time payments than China, US and UK combined. Wow, that's crazy, because I know China is massively ahead of the United States in, in, in digital <laughs> yeah. payments, but if India is doing more real-time payments, wow, wow, that's, that's really, that's big. Yes, and it's something where um, this ecosystem is, is, is an enabler for a lot of these fintechs, G2C schemes, um, and, and um, it also helps with financial inclusion. Now, just to give you an impact, one of the things we do talk about, you know, we talked about uh, central bank digital currencies and digital currencies. Roughly the cost for cash management in a, in a country which has a lot of cash and, and checks is around 2% of your GDP. 
Now, India as well, a bit like uh, the UAE, um, roughly has about 15 to 17% of their people who are unbanked. Um, one of the estimates from India says that if they do bank these unbanked, it could boost their GDP by more than 10%. Oh, that's just massive. Yeah, <laughs> that's kind of a no, no brainer. I mean, it can't be easy, but those yeah. numbers are just crazy. Absolutely. And see, one thing we at Miss Financial do, and this really resonates um, from uh, our chairman, Amir Nagami, is we don't shy away from the tough problems. Uh, we're very much here to look at this space and, and try and uh, address the bigger problems and, 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 and create benefit for all the stakeholders. Uh, so if we're in the UAE right now, of course, the UAE government, the UAE central banks, and the bank so all of this is very important to us yeah and it's uh it's it's a big discussion as well because you know that we've ended up talking about kind of human aspirations what's happening in governments yes um, the impact on the economy the the you know how these tools can even impact the the future of the state or the, the governance institutions we rely on um but yeah, I guess uh, in the beginning, it's all about having digital wallets that, that work seamlessly um, and are safe yes. and trustworthy and work across borders. So, but anyway, Angad, thank you so much for your time today. Fascinating Pleasure. discussion. Thank you so much for your time, John. Pleasure talking to you. Sponsor information. The UAE Tech Podcast is distributed by Albuaba Business free of charge. To sponsor a single episode or a series of themed episodes, please contact our editorial team or download a sponsorship press pack. Sponsors receive an article on Albuaba Business, syndication distribution on Albuaba Syndicate, email direct marketing across the region, and brand inclusion across all podcast marketing design, audio, and video formats. Albuaba is not a PR company, and we do retain editorial discretion and quality control as an independent publisher. Companies looking to support a dialogue on technological transformation in the UAE are encouraged to contact our team.